for those that read the Bible, the task that we have is to, as much as possible, gain the eyes and the ears of the original recipients of the biblical account. And today, sometimes readers make the mistake of assuming that the original text was written directly to them. Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and thanks for coming back. I know you have a choice. There are millions of choices in the podcast world, and I appreciate it every time you click on this one. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a little trip. As best we can, we'll be visiting the world of the ancient Near East. And why is that important? Because the ancient Near East had a different understanding of cosmology and divine rest, a topic that we have become very familiar with in this platform. Before we get into all that, I do want to mention just briefly that I've put together a trip to the Holy Land. This is a 10-day tour of Israel, and it is going to be taking place February 15th through the 24th of 2024. Have you ever thought about visiting Israel? A trip like that will completely change the way you read the Bible. I've been seven times. This will be my eighth trip. And although I love seeing the land, and that's a huge part of it, obviously, for me as the leader of groups, I've been there enough that I know what's around the next corner. And I love being able to take people around that corner and see them experience the world of the Bible in a new way. So all the details are at RethinkingScripture.com. If you go to the just opening page, there's a Israel trip information page link right there at the top. It'll discuss the itinerary and the pricing and answer probably most of the questions you would have. We already have several people signed up and the available seats will likely fill up sooner rather than later. So if that's you, if you've ever envisioned yourself visiting the Holy Land, maybe next year, maybe next February is a good time for you to go. I would love to have you along and show you the land. And on a trip like that, you get to see the physical land, but you're in a modern culture. The difference in reading the Bible then, it's talking about those places, but it's written into an ancient culture that no longer exists. And that's what we're going to dive into a little bit more on today's episode. The writers of the Bible lived in that ancient culture, and the original readers were immersed in it. And the stories within the Bible are told in such a way that made sense to that original culture and the people that lived in that time. So today, we'll be looking at how people who lived in that ancient Near Eastern culture understood the creation of the cosmos and what they thought of the gods that they believed ruled over their world. It's going to be quite a journey. And it may cause you to rethink how you've understood the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. 
So today's episode, I've broken into three different parts, and it's going to be based on three different propositions that come out of John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, with a subtitle, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. In that book, Walton's style of presenting the information is by making different propositions, stating them, and then backing up with a short discussion in chapter format. So today, we're going to take three of those propositions that he wrote about and discuss them in just a little bit of detail. The first part will be out of proposition number one in the book. Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology. We'll discuss that in just a minute. In the second part of today's episode, we'll discuss the second proposition in his book, which is ancient cosmology is function-oriented. And because we don't have time to discuss all 18 of his propositions, we're going to then skip in the third part of the episode down to his proposition number seven, which is divine rest is in a temple. So that's the outline of today's episode, and we're just going to dive right in. And I'll be going back and forth between some of the content that I included in my doctoral thesis, so some of my own words, and then also I'll be interacting with the text directly from John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Those three parts, that's where we're headed, and let's just dive into the conversation. So for those that read the Bible— The task that we have is to, as much as possible, gain the eyes and the ears of the original recipients of the biblical account. And this is often not the way we approach Scripture in modern times. The Bible was written to a particular people group with a particular worldview and an understanding of the cosmos, one that we don't share today. And today, Sometimes readers make the mistake of assuming that the original text was written directly to them. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. While the text was written for the church throughout time and history, it was only originally written to a certain people group. And any understanding of biblical comments have to be understood first within that original context with those original readers in mind. And it's then, and only then, when we understand the original context, that one should attempt to apply those comments that the Bible makes into our modern-day setting. So to begin our discussion today about Genesis 1 being ancient cosmology, it's just going to be important to understand and acknowledge that in Old Testament times, Moses and his audience likely had a very different cosmology than readers today. Their understanding of how the world functioned would have been fundamentally different. Here's how John Walton approaches it. He asks the question, so what are the cultural ideas behind Genesis 1? In his book, his first proposition is that Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology. And he suggests that ancient cosmology does not attempt to describe cosmology in modern terms or address modern questions. He says the Israelites received no revelation to update or modify their scientific understanding 
of the cosmos. They did not know that stars were suns. Some of us don't even realize that today, but that knowledge is known today. And Walton says, they did not know that the earth was spherical and moving through space. They did not know that the sun was much farther away than the moon, or even further than the birds flying in the air. They believed that the sky was material, and that it was solid enough to support the residence of deity as well as hold back waters. Walton says in these ways, and many others, they thought about the cosmos in much the same way that anyone in the ancient world thought. And that's not like anyone thinks today. And in the process, God did not think it important to revise their thinking. So, breaking away from Walton for just a moment, when people now, today, in the 21st century, look into the sky and we see blue, we just intuitively understand that we are looking at the atmosphere and then into space beyond that. But the original readers of the Bible, they saw blue in the sky, and they noticed that water sometimes fell from that same sky, and they may have assumed that there were waters up there with some sort of a structure to hold those waters in place. So how can one be more certain that this is how they may have understood it? At least some of their views are made apparent by the vocabulary that they used. So, for instance, the text speaks of floodgates or openings in the firmament, which could be opened to allow water to come flooding down. And the text also speaks in Genesis 7:11 about fountains of the great deep bursting open. Now, even though we're used to that description, biblically speaking, we would not choose to use that same terminology today to describe the process of how water comes up from the ground. Modern readers understand more about the physical universe now. And although those familiar with the biblical text have become accustomed to reading and even using some of this ancient biblical terminology, we also understand that current science does not support the description that the Bible gives of the cosmos. Back to Walton just for a second here. He says, Some Christians approach the text of Genesis as if it has modern science embedded in it, or that it dictates what modern science should look like. But this approach to the text of Genesis 1 is called concordism as it seeks to give a modern scientific explanation for the details in the text. It represents one attempt to translate the culture and context for the modern reader. But the problem is, we cannot translate their cosmology into our cosmology, nor should we. Walton goes on to say, if we accept Genesis 1 as ancient cosmology, then we need to interpret it as ancient cosmology rather than translate it into modern cosmology. If we try to turn it into modern cosmology, we are making the text say something that it never said. It's not just a case of adding meaning as more information has become available. It is the case of changing 
meaning. And since we view the text as authoritative, it's a dangerous thing to change the meaning of the text into something it was never intended to say. So coming away from Walton again, I think it's important to understand and just point out that technological advancement in modern history, it has helped to develop a more detailed understanding of the cosmos. So while approaching the text of Genesis 1, it's important to acknowledge that the concept of the cosmos in the mind of the ancient readers was likely very different than one's concept today. So practically, how does this play in? When interpreting the creation account, and there are myriads of ways that people read and understand that ancient creation account today, the role of the modern reader while we approach Genesis 1 should be that we're not looking for the text to directly speak to the modern questions and understandings of the cosmos. That's the mistake that most Bible readers make. It is common to approach the text as if it was written to modernity, but it wasn't. And there's a difference between the Bible being written for us today. That is true, but it was not written to us. It's like we're reading somebody else's mail. And we have to, as best we can, understand what it would have meant to the original person that opened up that letter. And I'll finish this part of the episode with how Walton finishes that first proposition in his book. He says this, If cosmic geography is culturally descriptive rather than revealed truth, it takes its place among many other biblical examples of culturally relative notions. For example, he says, in modern language, we still refer to the heart metaphorically as the seat of emotion. In the ancient world, this was not a metaphor, but physiology. Yet, we must notice that when God wanted to talk to the Israelites about their intellect, emotions, and will— he didn't revise their ideas of physiology and feel compelled to reveal the function of the brain. Instead, God adopted the language of the culture to communicate in terms they understood. So the idea that people think with their hearts describes physiology in ancient terms for the communication of other matters. It's not revelation concerning physiology. Consequently, we need not to try to come up with a physiology for our times that would explain how people think with their entrails. But a serious concordist would have to do so to save the reputation of the Bible. Concordists believe that the Bible must agree or be in concord with all the findings of contemporary science. Walton finishes this way. Through the entire Bible, there is not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. No passage in the Bible offers a scientific perspective that was not common to the old world science of antiquity. 
So according to John Walton, Genesis chapter one is ancient cosmology. And you need to understand, John Walton is respected within Old Testament studies. His specialty is going out into the ancient Near Eastern texts that we now have access to. And as best as anyone out there, he is understanding the ancient ideas, the way people thought in ancient times. And he brings that not just into the biblical text of Genesis 1, but he also invites us to imagine ancient cosmology as being function-oriented. Well, what does that mean? Well, this first becomes apparent in the very first verse of Genesis. The creation account begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Modern readers might assume this is some sort of an ontological description of the material creation of something from nothing. That would certainly answer questions about the creation of matter. And that's very important for modern readers, the scientifically based creation of matter in the physical realm. But the question about Genesis 1 really should be, what does it mean for something to exist? We have modern understandings of that, but Walton suggests that the ancient understanding of something existing differs in some ways from the way we approach it today. Walden says it this way, what does it mean for something to exist? It might seem like an odd question with perhaps an obvious answer, but it is not as simple as it may seem. He says, in a discussion of origins, we need to focus on the ontology of the cosmos. What does it mean for the world or the objects within it to exist? How should we be thinking about cosmic ontology? He suggests that the modern material view of ontology, meaning something exists when it becomes physical in nature, determines how we think about creation. And it's easy to see how. Since in our culture, we believe that existence is material. We believe that to create something means to bring its material properties into existence. And because of that, our discussions in modern day tend to focus on material origins. But he says it is possible to have a cosmic ontology that is function-oriented and also possible to see creation in those terms as a part of a function. Even staying within the realm of English usage, We can see that we don't always use the verb create in material terms. When we create a committee, create a curriculum, create havoc, or create a masterpiece, we are not involved in a material manufacturing process. Though a curriculum, for instance, eventually takes a material form, the creation of the curriculum is more a process of organizing ideas and goals. Most of us never consider alternative ontologies. Our culture has given us our beliefs and what it means for the cosmos to exist. Material ontology would suggest that existence is material and creation is a material act. And many of us would not realize that many of these beliefs 
that we commonly hold are the result of a choice of ontology. If we are going to understand a creation account from the ancient world, we must understand what they meant by creation. And to do that, we must consider their cosmic ontology instead of supplying our own. So just a brief comment, and then we'll get back to Walton's work. Based on other extra-biblical creation stories from the same ancient Near Eastern context and culture, we might better understand creation as a process of giving order and function to the world instead of one primarily concerned with the creation of material. And this is one thing that Walton has brought out brilliantly, that ancient writings suggest that people of that time, the ancient Near Eastern culture, were not as concerned with material creation as much as they were with order and function. Walton says it this way, in a functional ontology, to bring something into existence would require giving it a function or a role in an ordered system, rather than giving it material properties. So consequently, something could be manufactured physically, but still not exist if it has not become functional. So breaking away from Walton, I know some of you are just like, what? (laughs) What does that even mean? That something could be manufactured physically, but still not exist if it hadn't become functional yet. Well, let's just sort of pop into modern day examples of this so that you kind of get a feel for how they may have been thinking. Using a computer in modern day life has become so commonplace that we kind of forget about what it actually takes to create a computer. I mean, when we think about computing and using a computer, most of us are only concerned with when we open up our laptop, is the program that's inside coming up properly? Is it allowing me to get on the internet? Is it allowing me to do the work that I wanted to do? That's how most of us think about computers today. But that use of computers has little to do with the material creation of the computer. I mean, we understood this earlier in the computer generation because some of us would have uh, like big towers, uh, computers that sat on the floor that when something went wrong, you opened up the tower and you got to see the innards. Most of those innards aren't even approachable by us today. Apple has made it extremely difficult to get inside your computer. They just don't want you to mess anything up. But in previous generations of computing, people understood that the use of the computer is really only made possible by each of its individual parts being put together properly. We'd open up the tower and we'd see cards and drives and circuit boards. And that's the extent of everything I know about the innards of a computer. (laughs) But it wasn't just even the physical things. It was people had to write programs. And when that software was installed on the computer, its existence is still meaningless. Meaning even when the thing is put together in a certain order and the software is in place on that hardware, what if there's no power? All of these things are obstacles to the computer's existence. We might argue that when the power is actually given to that thing that we've made and ordered, 
that then it finally really exists. But that's not even really the final idea of that, because what if no one sits at the keyboard of that computer or knows how to even use it? Even in that state, a fully functional computer with software and power remains non-functional and for all inherent purposes, it doesn't exist unless it has somebody to use it. So in this example of computer building and software writing and organizing and power and people, depending on your perspective of what a computer is, you might be inclined to attribute existence to the computer at different stages in that process. If you build computers yourself, you might think that that computer comes into existence when the physical material parts have been created. But most of us, most of us in just the common everyday world that we live in today, we think of a computer existing by its functionality. I could walk downstairs right now and introduce you to five or six laptops that no longer exist in my mind. But they are on the top shelf in our studies closet, and it drives my wife crazy that I keep them. They no longer exist because when I open them up, even if they have a power source and they boot up, they're pretty much non-functional because they're running like Windows 98. They don't exist in my mind. They don't come to play in any of my thinking when it comes to computer use. So to say this in another way, our ontology about computers focuses on what we believe to be most significant. And in the ancient world, what was most crucial and significant to their understanding of existence was the way that the parts of the cosmos functioned in an orderly fashion. They were not concerned about their material status. That's something that we've brought in in our modern conversations. So in my book, Rethinking Rest, I describe the creation of the cosmos in Genesis 1 uh, very simply, and it's this. It's the process of God giving everything a place to be and something to do. Now, that's just an easy way of saying that God is giving a functional ontology to the cosmos. And the account in Genesis 1 can be confusing when one tries to fit it into a material understanding of the universe because it's best understood from a functional lens. Let's just look at the example of, for instance, light and darkness. God says, uh, Genesis 1, chapter 3, God starts by saying, let there be light. Then the text suggests that he separates light from darkness. That's in Genesis 1, 4. Now, if we're thinking about this account as creating material, it's really difficult to understand what this means, separating light from darkness. Because scientifically speaking, there is either light or darkness. Separating them is an impossibility because they do not exist together in any material way. Light and darkness are not material. And by the way, when God calls light good, it's doing the thing that it was created to do. Walton then takes those ideas and moves it on into the text. He says it this way, 
in Genesis 1-5, God calls the light day. He says this is another clue we should consider a non-material understanding of this text. Light is not day in a material sense. Day is a period of time where light prevails. This is what God creates on the first day, periods of time where light and darkness prevail. So the description of what God is doing is a functional description. God is giving order and creating time. And I would add all of that is non-material. The light is called day and the darkness is called night and the first day came and went. So in the biblical account, the function of time is in place, even though the sun and the moon will not be discussed until day four. And that might be a problem if we're trying to explain the creation of matter, if we think that's what this story is telling. But it's perfectly fine if we're reading the story as a story of functional ontology. And skipping ahead, what happens on day four? The sun and the moon are put into place. But the descriptions of this event is not given in terms of just the objects themselves, but rather it's their function. They were put in place to govern the day and the night, and they gave light. And they also help govern the seasons of the year. So it's not just sufficient to understand Genesis 1 as ancient cosmology. We also need to understand that that ancient cosmology was really function-oriented. Their ontology, when they considered things to exist, was viewed through a functional lens. And the way they would have read Genesis chapter 1 was through that lens. But we've made it all about the creation of material objects because that's the way we think about existence. And let's not make the mistake that some of you have already skipped ahead to. Just because they thought functionally in their idea of what existed does not mean that they would not have been thinking about who created all this stuff physically. It just wasn't what was most important to them. It has become what's most important to us. The theology that we hold in modernity about God creating everything from nothing, they would have agreed with that premise in ancient times. There are other places in the Bible that talk about that theology. But when it comes to something coming into existence and the ontology of the cosmos, they were most concerned about how does this whole thing work? What rules has this God put in place for the function and order of his cosmos? That's an ancient mindset that we've largely lost in our modern discussions. Well, to close out today's episode, we're going to skip down to proposition number seven in the Lost World of Genesis 1 book by John Walton and discuss his premise, his proposition, that divine rest is in a temple. So to begin with, there are a number of creation accounts from the Sumerian, Egyptian, and Babylonian traditions. Those are all ancient Near Eastern traditions. And all of those creation accounts— from those secular societies, 
they all follow a similar basic format, and that's because they all come from a similar general understanding of the cosmos, the one people had at that time and in that culture. And it's these stories that show that the individual different cultures, Sumerian, Egyptian, Babylonian, they had similar concepts regarding the shape and purpose of the cosmos and the role that deity or gods played in that creation. It not only involved the origins of the cosmos and how the deity played into that, but also lots of divine conflict because there was a pantheon of gods. There was lots of infighting within the gods up there. And they all suggest that their idea of creation was a movement from non-functional chaos to a functional system. And while these pagan stories may disagree on like order of events and obviously character names, and maybe even the principal reasons for the creation, they all approach the idea from a perspective of functional ordering. So that's important to understand. And like I said, these stories of creation often told of competing gods fighting to win control of the earth. And as one god would eventually defeat the other gods, then the winning god would put the pieces of the world together so it functioned properly. And in so doing, that god would set up their cosmic temple. They would often finish by putting a statue of wood or stone of their image within their temple, the newly ordered heavens and earth. That was their temple. And in those stories, those gods at that point would settle in and engage with the new creation. So with everything put in order, this new world could get on with the business of the day-to-day life. This is the idea of a god resting in a temple. And it shouldn't be surprising that the creation narrative of Genesis is written using this very same format. In other words, it uses the commonly understood language of the day to display a familiar story. But the biblical account had important distinctions. In that account, there are not many gods. There's only one God who comes upon the world, and he finds it without form and void. Void of what? Void of other gods with which to contend. In its day, the biblical account was written in such a way that everybody, not just Israelites, but everybody from every culture would have easily understood the dramatic difference of the God of Israel. And those distinctions are largely lost when we approach the text in modernity from a different perspective. And from a rest standpoint, this factors in because we've become confused about what divine rest is. The question that most in the church should ask is, what exactly was God doing on that seventh day? Was he tired? Did he take a nap? It seems inappropriate to suggest that the all-powerful God of the universe got tired, and so he needed to take a break. So if that's not the case, what is he doing at the conclusion of the creation, and why is it written in this language? And Walton suggests that there is something that was obvious to the original hearers that we have largely lost in our understanding of divine rest. He says it this way, 
In the traditional view that Genesis 1 is an account of material origins, day 7 is mystifying. It appears to be nothing more than an afterthought with theological concerns about Israelites observing the Sabbath. In other words, it's nothing more than an appendix, a postscript, or maybe a later tack-on. But in contrast, a reader from the ancient world would know immediately what was going on and recognize the role of day seven. Without hesitation, the ancient reader would conclude that this is a temple text and that day seven is the most important of the seven days. In our modern material account, day seven would have little role, but in a functional account, as we will see, it is the true climax without which nothing else would make sense or have any meaning. So how could reactions be so different? The difference is the piece of information that everyone knew in the ancient world and to which most modern readers are totally oblivious. And the fact is that deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. This is what temples were built for. We might even say that this is what a temple is, a place for divine rest. And perhaps even more significant, in some texts, the construction of a temple is associated with cosmic creation. So, breaking away from Walton for just a second, throughout the creation account in Genesis 1, God takes something that is without form and void, and he gives it form and function for the purpose of his rest. And it's not because he needs to take a nap or because he's tired. This rest is his engagement with a functional and ordered creation. To revisit the computer example in the last segment, God's rest is when he sits down at the computer that's been fully assembled and he begins using it. It's the way we think of computers today. Most of us, even though we're very busy on the computer, we rest at the computer. That, in an ancient idea, would be described as resting because it's the end state. It's when everything is functional and being used. Walton describes it this way. What does divine rest entail? Most of us think of rest as disengagement from the cares, worries, and tasks of life. What comes to mind is sleeping in or taking an afternoon nap. But in the ancient world, rest is what results when a crisis has been resolved or when stability has been achieved, when things have settled down, in other words. Consequently, normal routines can be established and enjoyed. And for deity, this means that the normal operations of the cosmos can be undertaken. So this is more a matter of engagement without obstacles rather than disengagement without responsibilities. Let me just repeat that last line from Walton because it's really key. This ancient idea of rest is more a matter of engagement without obstacles rather than disengagement without responsibilities. Breaking away from Walton, I realize this is a paradigm shift for a lot of people. But 
if understanding the Bible in its original context is really the key to understanding what it's saying, it is important that we make this shift. And let me just give you another example, another way to understand this. So I used to be a youth pastor. I think I've said that a few times here on the podcast. And during that ministry of youth pastoring, several times, I invited the youth of our church out to our home, specifically during the summer when they could be outside the house. That was important for my wife. (laughs) As much fun as it was to have people over, the events that I created when the youth came out, those were quite an undertaking. So just to describe it a little bit, we have about an acre of grass around our house that needs to be cut first. So that's the first thing. Then with the amount of uh, kids that came out, we had to have something for them to do, not just hang out on freshly cut grass. So I had a bunch of games in the garage and all those games needed to be brought out of the garage and set up. So the volleyball set fit really nicely in the front yard. We often did it there. There was a basketball hoop that I often needed to move into its place. And then the pickleball net, was set up in the driveway, tables set up for food. That whole event often took the better part of the entire day to prepare. We called it Wednesday night on the farm. And if I was lucky, I would spend my whole day setting the thing up and have just enough time to sit down and grab a bite to eat prior to that first van load of kids arriving from the church. And it's not like that was the end of it. Once everyone arrived, It was busy, to be sure. But honestly, I never considered that part, once the kids arrived, as work. I mean, it was really fun to watch the kids enjoy the property and all the games that had been set up. So my giving order and function to the farm in preparation for the students' arrival, that's similar to God's creation. He gave the earth function. He put things in order so they could be used. And I believe that if we're trying to understand the author's intent of the creation account in Genesis, we might understand that rest is the result of a resolved chaos. And in this sense, the creation was ready for rest when everything was set up properly and working. So rest becomes the opposite then, not of work, but of unrest of chaos. And Walton comments on the difference between a modern versus an ancient understanding of rest this way. After creation, God takes up his rest and rules from his residence. This is not new theology for the ancient world. It is what all peoples understood about their gods and their temples. In the Old Testament, The idea that rest involves engagement in the normal activities that can be carried out when stability has been achieved, that can be seen in the passages where God talks of giving Israel rest in the land. In Deuteronomy 12.10, also again in Joshua 21.44 and 23.1, it says things like this, But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. So just to comment on that, people within the church today, 
they have several ideas about a believer's obligation to observe the Sabbath. And most conclude that the Sabbath is a period of physical rest. In other words, disengagement from the normal activities of life. But what Walton is suggesting, and I believe rightly so, is that Genesis presents God's rest as engagement after he has put the cosmos in functional order. So how does that play in today? Believers are to understand the Sabbath as a state of functional readiness from which they are able to engage the creation. So by definition, it's a state only attainable after one allows God to visit the chaos of life and establish function and order in its place. Walton says, in the same way, a temple is built in the ancient world so that deity can have a center for his rule. The temple is the residence and palace of the gods, like the American White House. It's the hub of authority and control. It's where the work of running the country takes place. And when a newly elected president looks forward to taking up residence in a White House, it's not simply so he can kick off his shoes and snooze in the Lincoln bedroom. It's so he can begin the work of running the country. Thus, in ancient terms, the president takes up his rest in the White House. And this is far from relaxation. The turmoil and uncertainty of the election is over, And now the president can settle down into the important business at hand. Walton continues, The role of the temple in the ancient world is not primarily a place for people to gather in worship like modern churches. It's a place for the deity. It's sacred space. It's his home. But more importantly, it's his headquarters. It's the control room. When the deity rests in a temple, it means that he's taking command, that he is mounting to his throne to assume his rightful place and his proper role. And Walton comments that in ancient Near Eastern literature, this concept of rest appears early and often. And just to follow up on that idea, while the picture of God's rest in Genesis is presented functionally, it's also presented as complete and permanent. So how do we know this? During the first six days of creation, the author uses literary repetition to describe the completion of each day. We're very familiar with this. At the conclusion of each day, he writes something like, and there was evening and there was morning one day. We see that first in Genesis 1-5. And it's this phraseology that's used again and again throughout the whole first chapter. But it's interesting to note that when the author describes the seventh day, when God had completed his work and rested, there's no mention of an evening nor a morning. So in the context of the story, the seventh day was certainly different than all the others. It's unlike the others. God blessed the seventh day, and he set it apart from the other days of creation. And it's that use of the evening-morning motif, the literary repetition of that throughout chapter 1, 
That is significant because the lack of that on the seventh day has been seen as a suggestion that God's rest from creative work never ended. Walton says it this way, Sometimes people have raised the question, what did God do on the eighth day? In the view being presented here in his book, on the eighth day and on every day since, he is in the control room from where he runs the cosmos that he set up. This is the ongoing work of creation. When we thought of Genesis 1 as an account of material origins, creation became an action in the past that is over and done with. God made objects, and now the cosmos exists uh, materially. That's the way we think of it. Viewing Genesis 1 as an account of functional origins offers more opportunity for understanding that God's creative work continues. And breaking away from Walton, it continues, but it's significantly different. It continues in the regular, everyday order of life. And the items that were accomplished on the first six days, those don't need to be revisited because they're very good. And I might add that by not using the established literary device of the morning and evening in regards to the seventh day, the author literarily comments about the type of rest that God entered. It was complete and unending. His rest was. So the author is not suggesting that the seventh day did not end, but that God's rest was ongoing. He rested completely from that type of work, and he never went back. So one might argue that God is busy at work even to this day. So why is it important that we adopt this ancient idea of what the cosmos is, what it means to exist, and what maybe godly rest is? Isn't that just kind of condensed into the first chapter of the Bible? Well, the logic from a New Testament perspective is refreshed by the author of Hebrews. And I've covered this on other episodes, but I'll just briefly mention it here. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the author goes on a rather extended discussion of the rest that remains for believers in a New Testament post-cross environment. And it's the author of Hebrews that encourages all believers, people that have accepted God's order and function and believe that he is true and that his way is best. It's important for those believers to be diligent to enter the rest that remains for us. And the author has already said that our rest, when we choose to enter it, is similar to God's rest when God rested. And that sucks Genesis chapter 1 all the way in to the New Testament and makes it relevant all of a sudden for us to understand exactly what that rest is. Because if we misunderstand what rest is, it will not only affect our behavior, but it has the potential of changing our existence from one of rest that's available to us today to one of restlessness, where we struggle to find our place to be and our thing to do in God's mighty cosmos. Well, if you get nothing else out of today's episode, 
I just want you to really understand that Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology. And any attempt to bring it into our modern scientific discussions is likely to produce a reading or maybe an understanding that differs dramatically from the original intent. They were just less concerned with the creation of physical material. That's our focus today. They were more concerned with the function and order that a deity had created. How is this thing all supposed to work? How do I make the gods happy, in other words, was the mindset. And if I can understand how the gods set this up, then I can make them happy and my life will be easier. Most of that ancient mindset has been resolved from a scientific standpoint. So when we approach the text, we're not thinking, what do I need to go outside and do to make the gods happy or to make the one true God happy from a Christian worldview? In the ancient mind, the gods were responsible for the function of everything. And the Bible's contribution to that ancient conversation, it was dramatic. It's the Bible that introduced the idea that there's only one God that's responsible for this whole thing. The function and order that he created, it invites all of humanity to participate in the restful rule of his creation. God has invited humanity, not just the humanity of the ancient Near East, but the humanity of today that finds themselves caught in various states of chaotic situations. He invites us into that process, into that rest, and it's available every day. And so it's important to understand that the ancients were having a different discussion about rest. And it's time for us to listen in on their wisdom. <laughs>